know you and be forgiven. And in your word, we can know Christ and salvation in him. Be with Andrew as he preaches your word and make our ears and hearts attentive to your voice as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Wait a minute. What just happened? I'm sure the people in the arena the other night watching Fairleigh Dickinson play Purdue were thinking that, you know, wait, what just happened? Did, did a 16 seed who barely even made the tournament, they were one of the, the first four teams that had to earn their way into the tournament, did they just beat the number one seed? And the act answer, of course, is yes, they did. They shocked the world, you know, as uh, their coach said. Sometimes we are involved in those types of situations where you just have to stop and clear your head, and you're, you're asking yourself, wait a minute, what, what just happened? What, what was it that went on there that was so, uh, so unexpected, so head-turning. It, it, it was drawing our attention. The story that we have in Luke chapter 7 is something akin to that. In fact, it's even more dramatic than Fairleigh Dickinson, a small college in uh, New Jersey beating mighty Purdue, the tallest team in the tournament with the shortest team in the tournament, all of these different things. What happened in Luke chapter 7 at this dinner at a Pharisee's house was even more uh, revolutionary, if you will. It was something that turned not only heads, but I hope will turn our hearts as well. If you were going to outline just the story, you might say there was an invitation 
from the Pharisee to Jesus to come uh, and to have a meal at his house, there was uh, an interruption uh, from this woman who found her way into the, the meal place. Uh, and then finally, there was an intervention uh, with Jesus and the Pharisee, and then eventually with all who were there uh, hearing them. Uh, but I don't want to just sort of describe the story to you. I want to put a different lens on it and ask not only what is happening, but, but why is it happening? And what is it revealing to us, about us, in this story, all of that? Uh, one writer says this way, says this about the meals that Jesus had. By sitting at table with those who were regarded as morally contemptible, which is exactly what Jesus is accused of. If you look immediately in the section just preceding this, it says John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and the reputation of him was that he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, this was Jesus' reputation because this was the company he kept. This, these were the meals that he ate. And Jesus earned the scorn of the Pharisees and other strict observers of the Jewish custom by sharing meals with those who can, were considered by the religiously righteous to be outcast and sinners. Jesus was challenging the central ordering principle of the Jewish social world, and not only the Jewish social world, but the Roman social world and everything that was around there. Jesus was calling this into question, which leads this uh, commentator to say, the meals that Jesus shared with the outcasts were not therefore simply the occasion for the delivery of the message, but rather they were the message. They serve to manifest the meaning of Jesus' ministry. So if we think about that and we think about these meals and, and what, what they were communicating to those who were there, to those who were around, I think we can go even a level below in terms of just describing kind of what happened uh, to understanding what it means. And so I want to divide it into a couple of different ways, you know, asking the question, if the meals were the message, what were they communicating? What, what was the message? Uh, and uh, two things overall just for you. One, Jesus uh, and the message of the gospel is, is a message that rattles societal norms uh, and then secondly, the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus was communicating through these meals, reveals uh, spiritual newness. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just start with the story because we do have to understand a little bit of the context here. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. Uh, the Pharisee's name is Simon. Uh, we, we don't know why Simon invited him. 
We don't know why, you know, we don't know if Simon, like Nicodemus, was, was truly a seeker trying to understand who Jesus was. Uh, we don't know if he's trying to trap him. We know that Pharisees were wont to do that uh, and, and oftentimes would set up these situations that were meant to expose Jesus. We don't know even if uh, Simon meant to invite him, uh, but then to dishonor him. You know, the fact that he didn't wash his feet or offer him a kiss, like that, it was extremely egregious in that type of society. So, you know, did, did Simon do that intentionally? We, we don't know. Uh, there, there are a number of different ways that you could maybe look at this. But nonetheless, here we have this Pharisee who's part of the social elite at that time who invites Jesus. Jesus takes the invitation. He goes to the house. Uh, and in the middle of the meal, uh, he is uh, set upon by this woman who begins to wash his feet with her tears, uh, wipe her feet with her hair, and put the kisses on his feet as well. Now, it's very strange for us. Uh, we can't really think about it. We're thinking about sitting in our kitchen table and somebody, you know, crawling up underneath the table and doing these types of things. We're thinking about somebody even walking into our home and like, what are you doing here? Uh, that sort of thing. But it's different. Some of you will remember Julie Walton several years ago here helped us, you know, think about hospitality and uh, painted the picture of what these courtyards were like in, in homes. Uh, so there would be a, a meal in which certain group of people were invited to, but they happened sort of in a semi-private environment where you could go into the house, which is oftentimes a courtyard, in the midst of that, and there were other people there, people from the town, others. So the fact that she was there was not completely unusual. Uh, there were other people around, maybe hoping to get some leftovers or whatever it might be. Uh, that in and of itself was not completely unusual. What, uh, and then the, the whole feet thing, like why is she washing his feet? You notice the, the text says they were reclining at table. Now, I do not understand this position for eating, but uh, you, I think many of you know that they would lay, you know, if this is the table, I'd, I'd lay and, and lean on my left arm because I'm right-handed, and I, I would be extended back beyond, and, and I would eat at the table. There's, there's some literature that said they thought it helped digestion. I'm not sure about that. I think it definitely gives you a cramp in your left side, uh, but, but that's the way that they were eating. Uh, so you can see that when she's coming up be, she, when she's coming up to him, she's coming up behind him, and she is able to easily access his feet. Now, that's a little bit of the scene. Uh, of course, it's, it's very scandalous, right? Uh, it's very scandalous because it, it just completely upends how we think about power. So we're in point one here. The gospel rattles our societal norms, uh, particularly how we think about how we think about people. 
uh, how we perceive power in those days. Simon was a Pharisee, I've already mentioned, religious, uh, social elite. You know, in this story that's emphasized, the, the fact that he's a Pharisee is repeated four times uh, in the opening little bit. Uh, he is given a name, uh, particularly in contrast to the woman who is unnamed. Uh, he has status in society. He is able to invite. He has wealth. He is able to um, he is able to provide this meal. All of these different things uh, he was looked up to as opposed to the woman. Uh, the woman is looked down upon. Right away, we, we recognize several things about her, as I've already alluded to. She's unnamed throughout this story, so uh, she probably has a name, but it's just not given to us. Uh, it's not, in that particular context, seemed as even important to who she is, but what she is is well known. She's a woman of the city. Uh, she is a sinner. At least three times she is identified, you know, in that way as a sinner. Uh, the, the narrator does that. Uh, Simon, when he says, does Jesus not know who's touching him, that she is a sinner? Jesus, Jesus even says, you know, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. So we, we get this picture. She's this anonymous woman who is known by what she does, uh, and a woman of the night is most likely exactly, or a woman of the city is most likely exactly what you think it is. Uh, she's known by what she does rather than by who she is. And this was uh, just so shocking then that this woman would have the audacity not necessarily to come into the, the meal, but that's part of it. But certainly then to have the audacity to come, to approach Jesus, to do what she does in washing his feet. But this is one of the things that we realize about the gospel. The gospel is not necessarily for those who are rich, who are well put together, who are powerful. The gospel is for those who are nobody, uh, who don't have any status in society, who, who have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. These are the people who are attractive to Jesus. And there, there are a lot of women in this story. Just you know, I've been thinking through our, our series, Flocking to Jesus, and uh, if you go back, I didn't actually go back and count, but it's been about half and half that we've looked at. You know, I think the last three weeks we've, we've looked at, at women in various ways who were touched by Jesus. Now, part of that to us just doesn't seem surprising. Because we realize that men and women are created equal before God and have this equal standing. And so, you know, the fact that we're going through these stories and seeing this as 50-50 uh, or whatever it is, you know, it, it doesn't really stand out to us. But that's not the way it was in that society. You know, many of you know that traditionally a Jewish householder 
would pray a prayer, so that would say, and this is a male, the head of the household, he would pray a prayer that would say, I thank God that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And and this was the attitude, not only in the Jewish society, but also throughout the Roman world. I mean, the Roman world was all about dominance and power and, and how that began to work out. So when we see the number of women that we see coming to Jesus uh, and, and falling at his feet and embracing this one, we recognize that he's telling us something significant, something subversive about the way that we think about significance and power and all of these different types of things. And he's telling us something that's really attractive to those who don't have power societally. Here's how uh, one commentator puts it. Christianity upended this whole idea of of dominance and significance. Leaders of the Christian church preached and urged an ethic of love and service. One person was not more important than another. All were on the same footing before God. The master, no more significant than the slave, the patron than the client, the husband than the wife, the powerful than the weak, the male than the female. Now again, That doesn't sound so shocking to us because we live in a world that has been shaped by this idea. You know, we we are the beneficiaries of a a Christian ethic that helps us to see. I mean, we have it woven into our Constitution. All men are created equal. Uh, And we're, we're, we're trained to see the world that way. But that's not where this, uh, that's not the, the significance or that's not the status of the world that Jesus was in. But this is one of the reasons why Christianity is so attractive overall. Rebecca McLaughlin in a book called uh, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, I think it is, uh, says this ethical reversal based on Jesus's words and actions made Christianity especially attractive to women in the ancient world and formed the basis of our modern belief that women are fundamentally equal to men. Far from being antithetical to women's rights, Christianity is women's first and best foundation. In the last two millennia, Christianity has gone from being a faith of a tiny minority to the most widespread and racially and culturally diverse belief system in the world. Sometimes, you know, the narrative isn't that. Uh, The narrative is Christianity is oppressive to women, and there clearly are incidences in the church, uh, all of those things that we have to own, that we have to look at, we have to ask ourselves, you know, does the way that we're operating truly line up with the gospel uh, that Jesus was coming and and preaching, presenting in the ways that he interacted with people? But when we look at Jesus, you know, when we look at the Gospels, we see something that is so attractive. It's so invitational for people of all sorts, not just women, but everybody who who has no place in society. They are welcome to come and to find a place 
at Jesus's feet. How did this woman know it? She probably heard Jesus talking. Maybe she had been at one of the meals with Jesus previously. We know that he ate with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, all of this. Uh, We recognize this. And what Jesus is doing here is is painting a picture. It's like, this is who I am, and this is why I've come. So that if you've got nothing, you know, in the eyes of this world, you can have everything uh, in relationship to me. The second way that Jesus sort of upends these societal norms uh, is the way that the way that I wrote it down here, and it's not really a full sentence, he, he eviscerates, I just liked that word this week, uh, he eviscerates a reliance on our own purity, particularly, and you may need to add this here, uh, in terms of its ability to bring us close to God. You know, the, the, Simon was a Pharisee. And they had sort of this way of thinking about relating to God, and it involved uh, the Torah, uh, reading, memorizing the Word of God, very good thing. Uh, You know that uh, Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, even young people of the day, they memorized large, large portions uh, of the Torah, God's Word, God's Law. They went to the synagogue. Uh, They had prominent places there. It was very much part of their life, and they kept themselves separate. We get a sense of that here in this text. You know, when the woman comes in, she begins to touch Jesus. Simon's thinking to himself, like, who is this guy? Does he, you know, if he is a prophet, remember uh, earlier in Luke chapter 7 when he raised the, the widow's son, everybody said, ah, a prophet has come among us. Simon's like, this guy's not a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. He would know that he needs to separate himself from her. Simon had this idea that that being morally upright, that that being uh, sort of a nice guy was what brought him closer to God. But Jesus is, is throwing that on its head because in the end, you know, we, we have two encounters with Jesus here. We have Simon and we have the woman. In the end, it, it's the woman who said, go into peace, you know, go into shalom. You, you go out with the blessing of God. Simon receives nothing, none of that blessing. So his, his morality, which is good on the outside, like we... This is not a, a, a call to be immoral. It's not a call to, to do wrong things or anything like that. But what we have to recognize is that our morality in and of itself does not bring us closer to Jesus. What brings us closer to Jesus is our surrender to him and a recognition of how much we need him. I mean, Jesus says in his little parable there, you know, you got one that owes 50, one that owns 500 or 5,000, whatever it is, you know, 10 times as much. But what makes them equal is they're both unable to pay. And that is what Jesus is pointing out. You can be as moral as you want, but you're still unable to pay. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it in... uh, 
in uh, mere Christianity. He says niceness, wholesome, integrated personality. It's an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, that we would save their souls. A world of nice people who are content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. And it might even be more difficult to save. And that is what Jesus wants us to see. He's Simon, you, you, you are all caught up in your position. You are all caught up in your morality, but you're lost. You cannot pay the debt just as much as this woman who cannot pay the debt. And I think this is why Jesus says in Matthew 21, he says, you know, talking to the religious leaders, he says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believe, they believe Jesus. Philip Yancey one time was at a, um, I, I don't know, some sort of, he's an author, speaker. Uh, he was at some sort of conference, and, and there were a number of uh, people that had come out of sex slavery and a number of different things, so they had held that occupation in their life. And he had an opportunity to talk with them, and, and he asked them this question, you know, why is it, do you think, that uh, Jesus says this, that prostitutes go into the kingdom before uh, the religiously elite. Uh, and after several minutes of silence, a young woman from Eastern Europe spoke up in her broken English. Everyone, she says, has someone to look down upon, but not us. We are at the low. Our families, they feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places, we're breaking the law. Believe me, we, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. We feel it, too. We are at the bottom. And sometimes when you are at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. I think that's exactly what these meals are saying. That if you, if you want the way up, you, you need to find the way down. It, it's not what you can bring. The, the only thing ultimately any of us can bring is, is empty hands before the Lord. I mean, that's, that's all we can bring. We, we are unable to pay. No matter how morally upright we may be, it is insufficient, and you cannot, you cannot erase your debt, whether it's 50 or 5,000 or 5 million. But that's the beauty, then, of what Jesus does, and we see that here. You know, in, 
not only upending these societal norms, it's not simply what Jesus came to do, but he is revealing a spiritual newness. He's revealing a reality that goes deeper than anything that society has to offer. Um, two ways I think that we see this. One, as I've mentioned, you know, what, what's the highlight of this of this text, if you see it at the end of the, the passage, verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? For this woman came and she has this effusive display of affection towards Jesus when Simon gave her absolutely nothing. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Uh, your sins are forgiven. How do we know that? It's because you loved much. Now, there are a couple of things here to point out, and we have to be careful because there's a danger point in this text right here. Jesus is not saying that her sins are forgiven because she loved much. You know, that, that's not, uh, it's, it's not a causation. Jesus is rather saying uh, that because she loves much, you know, it, it is an indication that she has recognized that her sins are forgiven. As I said, this is more than likely not this woman's first encounter with Jesus. Whether she heard him teach, whether she was at a meal with him, something. She, she had heard the message of the gospel that Jesus brought before. And, and she believed it. Jesus says to her, your faith. You know, your faith, what you've believed in, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is confirming that fact for her. Uh, and, and that is what Jesus came to offer. You know, more than status, more than uh, significance in this world, what Jesus offers to you and to me and to anybody who would see him through these eyes, what he offers is a spiritual newness, uh, life. You know, when Jesus says, go in peace, uh, it, it's actually best translated, go into peace. You know, go in peace, one commentator says, a Jewish commentator, he says, that's something that you say at a funeral. Uh, but go into peace is what you say to somebody who is living. And that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have brought you newness of life. I have removed this debt that stands between you and your heavenly Father. Uh, it, it's a debt that, that both focuses on the guilt. You know, when we think about forgiveness, we think about things that we have done. We think about transgressions uh, of God's law. And Jesus forgives the guilt of our sin. But he also forgives the shame of it. You know, the, what, what it is that, that we bear, this, this debt stands against us. And some of you recognize this, that there is a, a shame, a, a burden, a debt that clings to us, either through things that you have done uh, or things that have been done to you or in your family or whatever it might be. But Jesus releases this he sets it free I, I i love the interaction here and maybe some of you picked that up 
uh, you know, he asks this little parable. It goes quickly. Uh, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. That's the heart of forgiveness there, right? Uh, which of them will love him more? Sam, Simon answered, the one, I suppose. <laughs> Boy, Simon is on the hot seat there, right? For whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then look at verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, in one sense, it's a, it's a weird question. I mean, A, it's weird the way he asks it. You know, he turns towards the woman, but he says to Simon, do you see this woman? You know, Jesus sees. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the widow of Nain. You know, we see that throughout the gospel uh, accounts. Jesus really sees people in the way that everybody else does not. You know, saying to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, yeah, everybody's seen this. You know, what's going on here? This is a, a huge interruption. It's, it's disrupted our meal. Everything is going on. We see this woman. But Jesus says, no. Do you really see her? Because I don't see somebody who is just identified as a woman of the city. I don't see somebody who is just characterized by her sin. I see her as a daughter. You know, this, this woman has been looked at by so many men. She has been lusted after. She has uh, felt the desire. But she has never been looked at like she was looked at by Jesus. She knew true love then. And that is what Jesus is calling us towards. And that is what she responds to. She responds just with this overwhelming display of gratitude. You know, we don't know if she came with these kinds of attention that, or, or intention that she was going to shower Jesus with this kind of love. We don't know if she was reacting to the fact that Simon didn't do any of these things for her. Again, we cannot overemphasize how rude Simon was. You know, the fact that he as a host did not do these things for his guest, you know, it, you I'm not sure what the cultural equivalent of that is, you know, maybe serving dog food or something like that. I mean, it, it was terrible, uh, the rudeness that Simon uh, had on display. And, and perhaps she was just overcome by that, and she said, I, I've got to do something for Jesus. But the love that she displays coming out of being seen, coming out of recognizing that her sins are forgiven, that was her heart. And I had to ask myself uh, this week, you know, when was the last time that I wept because I was so overcome by the forgiveness of my sins from Jesus? When was the last time that I really even handled the, the, the bread and the wine and, and realized what it cost Jesus for me. When was the last time that I saw in Jesus the love that this woman saw and perceived and felt in him?
And notice she doesn't just display this love through her tears, but she surrenders herself. May not be completely obvious, but she, you know, she goes and she cries and and she kisses her feet and she wipes it with her hair. But she also takes the alabaster jar of perfume and, and she she breaks it. These are small jars, most often worn around the neck. They have a long, uh, thin neck on the jar. And when you break the neck to pour out the perfume, I mean, it's a one-time deal. Uh, and she, in, in doing these things, when she takes down her hair, you know, culturally, a, a woman uh, would never let down her hair in public. You know, they, we even have that, uh, that sort of saying in our, our parlance, you know, you let down your hair. What does that mean? Well, it means you're relaxed, you're vulnerable, you're not, uh, you're not sort of on edge anymore. Well, it meant that completely there. You would only let down your hair in the bedroom with your husband, that kind of thing. But she lets down her hair and she breaks this jar and she says, everything that I have, I surrender to you. All that I was, all of the tricks of the trade, all of the, the, the ways that I got my identity before, I, I surrender it all to you. And this is the response of love. This is the response of, of the gospel, of the story that invites us further in and farther up. Wait. What just happened? What, what just happened? It, it, it was a story that, that wasn't just something that would catch common curiosity. It's a story that appended the world. It's a story that continues to append the world. You know, we, we see so many ways in which the gospel goes forth, but it's always catching those who realize what they need. Not those nice people. Nothing wrong with niceness, but it's not sufficient. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its promise. We thank you for its invitation. Lord, we ask that you would meet us uh, and that we would surrender all that has identified us, all that we are clinging to for Uh, prestige and for status and all of these things that we would surrender them and that we would respond to the forgiveness that you have earned for us on the cross we pray in Jesus name amen